Hello, everyone. Welcome to Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carter Laren, and I'm joined, as always, by the bad man, Majama, Gary Smith. Gary, say hi to people. Hi, guys. Welcome. Hi, um, today, we have a special guest, friend of mine, and Bitcoin expert, uh, Kiara Bickers. Kiara has worked in Bitcoin since 2014, although I think, Kiara, you were first interested back in 2011. Um, and she's currently in the Bitcoin industry. She has a book out. She works with developers, but she also has a, um, a side project where she's really helping people understand Bitcoin at kind of a deeper level. And especially for people who maybe are a little bit scared of the word cryptography or don't like to, you know, there's hear a lot of conflicting information about Bitcoin. She's the expert at explaining what Bitcoin is and why it is and how it works. Um, you can follow her on Twitter at Kiara Bickers. And uh, you can get her book, Bitcoin Clarity, at getbitcoinclarity.com. We'll put the links to all that stuff below. Uh, Kiara, welcome to Unsafe Space. Thanks for joining. Hey, thanks for having me. That was a great intro. You're pretty awesome. I, I, I think you're pretty <laughs> cool. <laughs> so, well done. Uh, Kiara, I'm horrible at explaining Bitcoin to people, I figured out, because I, I'm a cryptographer, so all I care about is like the nitty gritty of like, this is how it works, but no one really cares. No, nobody yeah. cares. <laughs> yeah, actually, I think a lot of the, like when you and I talk, we end up talking for long periods of time, but we end up running to, into the same problem in that you're very analytical and I am too. I'm very analytical, but I can see beyond pure analytics, right? Like I don't need everything to be analytical. So uh, how you dare said that you? I meant you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I can actually have empathy for people who think differently. I think that's the core the core thing of what I'm trying to do in the book. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned that I work with developers, like for people who don't know, Bitcoin is open source, meaning that anyone can sort of contribute to the code. In reality, that means that people who are really good at cryptography contribute to the code and like everyone else just sort of watches in amazement at crypto magic because they have no idea what's going on. Um, but the idea is, is that because Bitcoin is open source, like developers aren't getting paid and a couple different companies in the space have hired those developers and then like, sort of sponsor them to work on Bitcoin. So the company that I work for, Blockstream, is one of those companies. Another one is Square. People would be more familiar with Square because you use that every time you like go get, buy coffee or something. But yeah, they're branching out and doing things and hiring crypto developers. And it's really interesting because when I talk to those people, they the delta between what I know and what they know is so big. Like they like cryptographers just know so much about obviously cryptography. And what they don't know is sort of the gap I've tried to fill in that they don't really know how to have empathy for real people um, that have an IQ somewhere <laughs> below 140. <laughs> uh, so that's what I'm trying to do with the book. The idea is like I want to explain Bitcoin visually with mental models without code um, so people could understand it. And not not because I told them what it is, but because they got it for themselves. So how would you explain I guess, Carrie, I'm just going to like, I'm going to use you as an example, Carrie. Um, well, I'll let you know, I actually, I'm a great example because I'm one of these people who needed someone to explain it to me and uh, I could always do with a refresher, but I was fortunate to have a friend who a couple years ago did a two hour call with me Whoa. where he was kind of doing what I would say was Bitcoin for dummies <laughs> and sure. tried to tried to help me understand it. And so uh, 
So I and and I I was excited, so excited that you we were talking to you today about this because uh, I'm at a point where I haven't thought about it in a while, other than just every once in a while I'll check in and see on the price and see how my Bitcoin's doing. But I don't oh, so really. You have to there. There you go. Yeah. After that call two years ago, I bought from him. I was like, okay, you've you've helped uh, helped me understand enough to buy, and. Um, but anyway, so I would like to I would like to hear I would like to hear more and I want to hear a less than two hour version. <laughs> yeah. So I will say this. It's really hard to do verbally. Um, that's why the book is illustrated on like every single page. Um, it's really, really hard to do verbally. But what I can do is sort of explain like what a lot of the Bitcoin explanations do wrong, because I think anyone who's listening and who's interested in Bitcoin would have heard about Bitcoin and would have heard some explanation that didn't resonate with them, which is why they continue to not get it, okay. right? And like the way that I explain it is, uh, I when I decided to write the book, basically I was sitting around with a couple ex coworkers of mine, and you know they sort of said like all the Bitcoin books suck, you know, like Buh. like everyone's screwed because all of them suck. And I was like, well, I could write one that's better, and like thinking that I can do that was kind of naive. But they're like, well, good luck organizing it because it's not it's going to be really hard. <laughs> I was like, OK, well, thanks, guys. Your big help. Um, but no, um, in that same sit down conversation, they told me about this idea called a time chain. And I think this sort of embodies a lot of the way that I like to teach anything, really, is that, you know, I could teach you the system of the blockchain about like, oh, well, this is how cryptography works and this is how phone loads work and this is how miners work. But that it doesn't really give you any context. So like for for, for context, the time chain was a comment in the original source code of Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin was created by this like anonymous guy called Satoshi, okay? And no one ever called what he did, a, well, he didn't call what he made a blockchain. He called it a time chain. And when you start to think about the idea, I don't know, Carter, if you've ever heard of the concept of the time chain, because it'll probably yeah. make sense to you. You have. Yes, but I don't know that I'm a great target for this conversation. So explain to Carrie. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't heard not about the target audience for this conversation at all. But it's still interesting to get like cryptographers feedback because I mean, they often try to explain these things and don't don't have much success. So it's interesting to, to have the conversation go three ways. But um, yeah, the idea is like, the blockchain is trustless because it doesn't have a third party source of time. Now I can sort of get into the weeds with it. But Basically, like everyone uses the word trustless, right? Like, oh, you don't need a third party. You can do things peer to peer. And there's all these sort of like hype words that are hard to understand. But at the very base of like, why is the blockchain valuable? It's because it's creating its own internal sense of time. And it sounds like really mysterious. And again, it's, it's a lot easier when I do it visually. But essentially, like I'm trying to break it down into smaller and smaller pieces, right? Like, what does a ledger need? A ledger needs to put transactions at a certain time, right? So if I send money to Carter and then he sends money to you, we need to know that he has the money before he can send it to you, right? So our transactions need a specific order and the blockchain was able to do this by grouping transactions in blocks and then putting them in a specific order. All right, so I've already gotten sort of like way more technical than I ever would have wanted, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll keep ranting just a little bit and explain it like this because this is how I frame the whole book. But I say that, when I got started in Bitcoin and when I wanted to learn about Bitcoin, uh, you mentioned that it was in 2011, 2012, but then I didn't start working in that industry for like another three years. I would go around asking people who like vaguely knew something about Bitcoin about what I should do to learn more. And unanimously, everyone would tell me to learn how to code. 
So I spent like two to three to four years learning how to code. If anyone ever learned C++, I'm not sure. But it's like I just I, I barely scratched the surface of being a semi-competent developer. And then I went back to the Bitcoin co code base and I still knew nothing about Bitcoin. And that was the fundamental problem that I was trying to solve for other people. Like, how do you learn about Bitcoin without learning how to code? Right. And then what what insight that I got that got me to frame the book was this concept called systems thinking. Um, a developer friend of mine sent me a YouTube video and it was just it completely blew my mind. But essentially, developers have this tendency to ask how systems work. And whenever you ask, like, how does a car work? How does an engine work? Like you can visualize it with an engine, right? You have in order for a, a mechanic to tell you how an engine works, they can tell you or they can show you by taking it apart, right? So it's like how questions take you inside the system. But then the example that I would give continuing to, to talk about like cars, for example, if I were to ask you, like, why is the engine up front? Nothing about taking the car apart would tell you that, right? Because like mm. in order to know that you need to know that the the car used to be called the horse-drawn carriage and the horse horses were put in the front of the carriage so they just put the engine in the front where the horses used to be right but you don't know that by taking it apart you you know that by learning at the historical context that surrounds the system so like when i try to explain bitcoin to non-technical people i try and show them the context that bitcoin evolved in like why were people trying to come up with peer-to-peer -peer technologies? Why was decentralization interesting to cryptographers? Why was Bitcoin interesting to libertarians or to conservatives or to liberals? Or what was the what were the the evolutionary pressures of the push for Bitcoin to to be discovered or invented? Right? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a much better way to describe Bitcoin. But as I said, it's hard to do verbally. It's better to do visually. Well, but this is those are actually the, the questions that I think our audience might find more interesting even than like the inner workings of how Bitcoin works, which is like, why does it matter? Why do people because you, yes. you'll have, yeah. you know, you'll have like uh, voluntarist type people think like this is the future of money. Right. And you'll have other people say it's a good investment. And I think you wrote a blog post about this where if you ask what Bitcoin is, depending on who gives you the answer, there's a very different description of what Bitcoin is. Um, and so, do you know, yeah, go ahead, Carrie. Well, do you, for my friend, for example, who I would say is a bit, he's a Bitcoin evangelist. He, uh, his, I think what he said, Bitcoin, I remember one thing he said to me that's, that stood out. He's, he's also a bit of a nihilist and an anarchist. Mm -hmm. And he, but he said, uh, you know, voting doesn't matter. That's not in his opinion, he's like, voting doesn't matter and it's not using your voice at all. And he, he said, you vote with your currency. You take your currency out of the banks and you put it into Bitcoin and that's you using your voice. That was his opinion. And I oh, thought... That's a that's, great evangelist. <laughs> that was a very yeah. interesting... I don't know what you think about that, but I was like... Oh. I mean, I think that... So I've been talking to a lot of people about Bitcoin recently and like anyone who's ever been on like Bitcoin Twitter knows that it's definitely a community. And my, I don't know, it's probably more of a pragmatic approach, but depending on who I talk to, I frame my discussion about Bitcoin differently. So if I'm talking to a whole bunch of Bitcoiners who like have a Bitcoin podcast and like live, breathe Bitcoin and only accept Bitcoin payments, like I have a very different message for those people because I do think there's some dangerous aspects to the way people are framing Bitcoin. Like 
there are people who say like, oh, a Bitcoin's going to go to 100K for sure. And like, you know, people people do this for sort of like tribal signaling. It's like, oh, if you because they're like, oh, I'm such a hardcore believer in Bitcoin. So therefore, like I get all the likes and retweets. And um, I think that is a dangerous sort of way to approach it. But I mean, talking to people who are interested in Bitcoin of just something other than the dollar, like, oh, I am unsatisfied with the way the dollar is being run. And this might be an interesting place to take the conversation. Like I voted for Donald Trump. Carter, I think you probably did too, right? I don't know if I'm outing you, but. No, maybe you're I'm, not outing yeah. me, but you might have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you are, just Basically, to be clear to everyone, we should tell everyone you're the girl who was famous uh, in the video, made famous by being pepper sprayed because you were wearing a Make Bitcoin Great Again hat that looked like a MAGA hat in Berkeley at the Battle of Berkeley. Right, right. And that's been talked about on Joe Rogan. I'm working on making like a little collage of every single time he, he mentioned it because I get like a flood of messages every time he mentions it again. It's quite funny. But um, but yeah, so that happened. I got maced with the Make Bitcoin Great Again hat. And I was very much interested in Bitcoin because of economics. So when I'm talking to quote unquote normies or quote unquote not insane people, like people who are just like interested in something as an alternative to the dollar, I think the conversation there is, look, the way the Federal Reserve or our you know government, it was maybe a bit of a stretch, the way people in power, a small group of people in power are controlling money is not sustainable. So over the years, we've had different ways to encourage economic growth. And I would not even necessarily frame this as malicious. I think people are doing the best they can with the limited amount of levers they have. Um, but, you know, like maybe people don't know this and there's sort of a, a certain amount of economic knowledge required for this conversation. But there is a concept called interest rates. Right. And the federal government or the Federal Reserve can control interest rates and they can print more money. Now, both of those things have pros and cons to it. But the the point and the pitch for Bitcoin when you talk about those things is you can only lower interest rates so much. So, you know, if interest rates were zero, that means they're practically just giving you money because they want to stimulate economic growth. They want people to borrow money and they're willing to pay you. So in some countries, interest rates go negative because they're willing to pay people to take their money so that they, it'll it'll move it'll move money in the economy and hopefully pull people out of a recession. That's the philosophy. And the same thing goes with printing money. Right. But the problem with that is that it only works in short periods of time. And then once you've sort of exhausted all those abilities, then, you know, the economy doesn't it doesn't go well from there. Uh, that's like my really moderate approach to to Bitcoin. <laughs> that, like maybe maybe central banks don't actually know what they're doing. I used to be a lot more sure about that. Uh, but now I'm more hesitant to be sure because the, the economy is just so nuanced that for me, it's hard to make like really confident statements about the future of how things are going to go. Well, and it's not clear what their agenda is either. Like, it's hard to say that someone's incompetent if you don't really know what their goal is. Like, it's not yes. even clear what the goal is for central banks, right? Right. You know, it's like when when Trump got in office, he actually was talking about how he wanted to audit the Fed. Now, that's a very conserv like very libertarian dog whistle type thing. And of course, that is not ever going to happen. But what he's done is not only not out of the Fed, he's gone completely in the opposite direction and is pushing for more quantitative easing, which is more monetary inflationary policies. Like he's he's pushing to print more money to push up the stock market, which is great for everyone who's in the stock market and really bad for anyone who has money in a bank account. Right. Um, and, and good for him if the stock market gets a bump prior to the election. Right? Politicians do it, this kind of stuff all the time. Right. It's really great for him because... I don't want to use the word morons, but morons, they'll measure the economy being good or bad simply by how well the stock market doing is doing. But 
it's like it's more complicated than that. Um, I do think that if you pump up the stock market, it probably does trickle down into some jobs. But if you were to ask me, is the economy really that much better from when it was 10 years ago? I would say maybe a little, but not much. Right. Right. So can we get back to like, why? So what's your main like, why Bitcoin? Like, why does it matter? Like, who, who cares? Is it because we're trying to fight the Fed? Is that is that what you're saying? I think the I think the main why Bitcoin is because it's an opportunity for more individual both freedom and responsibility. Right. So in a lot of the conversations political people tend to have about freedom, it ends up being like, well, we want more rights or we want more free shit. And it never comes with equal responsibility. Now, I the reason why I have to be cautious with with pushing Bitcoin at all is because it's the first time that you're pushing greater freedom in that no one can take your Bitcoin away from you. If I if I send you Bitcoin that can't be seized from your possession, I mean, ab, absent actual force right in front of your face, like in a bank account, the government can just like suck those funds. They can freeze your account. You know, there's a lot of limitations around the traditional banking system that can lock you out of, of finance. Now, the risk for most of those people is very, very low. Right. So the sell for Bitcoin is like this big, cautious. It's like a very, very cautious sell of like if you're willing to take on more responsibility, if you're not interested in short term, like uh, volatility, you're not trying to like make a million dollars really quickly because I think those people are just screwed to begin with. Um, and you're willing to manage your own funds like there's a lot of risk with Bitcoin. Keeping them in exchange is hard. There's so many things with Bitcoin that are hard. But in the long term and when I say long term, I mean, probably like maybe somewhere around 10 years or more, I think the payoff of being willing to take that responsibility, understand what this new technology, it's a, it's a whole new asset class. Like if people are willing to learn what that is and willing to take the responsibility to actually hold that, I think there's a lot of benefits for them, for the people who do that. And it's not just about like monetary benefits. I think the em- embracing of responsibility is really the sell for me. So what do you say to like um, the argument that, uh, it actually doesn't. It doesn't actually give you the freedom that uh, actually a paper dollar does. So, like holding dollars, um, you can deal under the table. Like you can you can avoid government in- involvement if you're exchanging dollars, but you can't with Bitcoin. Like it's very traceable. Um, people don't yeah. even know who owns it. But it, but at the end of the day, if you have to go to the store and buy a physical item, it will be linked to your ID at some point, right? Yeah, there's a couple of different analytic companies that will track. So like in the early days of Bitcoin, everyone used to think it was anonymous because, I mean, I used to buy all my Bitcoin peer to peer. Like I would go to a coffee shop and meet up with some guy who I met on, on a forum and then we would buy Bitcoin. But that's not the case anymore. Um, now everyone buys Bitcoin from Coinbase. And I think that's great. Like I don't I, I don't see it necessarily a problem with that unless, you know, you're keeping your funds on there for an extended period of time. But I think the criticism is totally valid. And one of the things that I talk about, not in the book, but I'm going to write a second book called Crypto Chaos. The idea there is that uh, I think there's an opportunity in the crypto space to branch out into more privacy oriented coins. So I wouldn't use Bitcoin if I was trying to be anonymous. So you would I would switch use to a different Monero cryptocurrency. Yeah, probably something like that. And but now at the end of the day, can you explain to people like if if um if I've got Bitcoin and I want to go buy a house or a car or some large ticket item, uh, presumably they're still going to know it was me who, even if it's not, even if it's a not Bitcoin, 
they're still going the government will have a way to notice that like I purchased the car with some sort of assets. So yeah, I think I think we're looking. Maybe your framing is not the way I would frame it. So I'm not necessarily saying that um, you get to Bitcoin is an opportunity for you to hide your money from the government. I'm saying that this is an opportunity to continue to have government if the government fucks up. So if the government were to say like hyperinflate their currency or to 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 not be able to successfully prevent another economic crash. That would be very, very good for something like Bitcoin. And you would probably you would probably continue to have to pay taxes on that. Like you're not avoiding taxes by using this. No one would advocate that. I wouldn't advocate that. But because it's scarce. So Bitcoin is capped, you know, like this is everyone talks about this. But the idea is that it's sort of like a libertarian sound money principle coin in that it's capped at 21 million. There will never be more than 21 million. So. The idea is is that the the value of Bitcoin increases over time as more people buy buy into this system, or as you said earlier, Carrie, like they vote with their vote with their dollars and trade their dollars for Bitcoin. Uh, but yeah, I don't I don't think that it's it's not a way to hide your money from the government. It's a way to have money even if the government fucks up. Okay, so you view it more as like an insurance policy against chaos rather than like yeah uh, yeah okay that makes sense. Yeah, I, I want to so give Carrie a chance to yeah. Okay. Well, one of the things my friend did was also kind of tell me about uh, when you were talking about like the Federal Reserve can control interest rates and print money. Um, he kind of told me about the history of like it was it in the 70s when we divorced the, from the gold standard from the gold standard, the value of the dollar from the gold standard, which it was Nixon. Yeah, I think that was Nixon. It was Nixon. I didn't know. I mean, I didn't have. Although, I'm in fairness, that was ignorant. the last divorce. There was like a early divorce. Yeah, it was already like pretty 19, bad, right? Yeah, yeah, it was 1914 or somewhere around then. Like there was a, maybe before then, I don't remember the date, but somewhere there was like a, a major step away from the gold standard. And then Nixon finally cut the last ties. At, yeah, anyway. So for yeah, speaking as a normie, that was compelling to me, learning about how the dollar is not tied to anything uh like th- that is that is valuable that, that that can just print on demand and that that dollar has the value of the dollar has been declining since then of course and so, so he was kind of talking about that and how bitcoin is different because there's a finite amount of it yeah and bitcoin isn't controlled by people like bitcoin is what it is and there it, it's a it's a living code base like this code has to be updated but it doesn't really change Right. It's like code may move around and bits of pieces may change, but it's not the functionality and the way it performs doesn't change. So it's not as if someone's governing Bitcoin's monetary policy. The way it would work and the way I would explain it, the way I would explain how it works to a normie is like Bitcoin, instead of having a constitution. Right. So the government representative democracies, we have this thing called the Constitution, which are basically rules that we shall not break. Right. And then we built all these political systems around that to then ensure that we don't break that. Right. In Bitcoin, we have these thing called uh, we have this thing called consensus rules and consensus rules mostly have to do with code and are sort of boring if you were to read them verbatim. But they do have some portions of economic policy in there. So being capped at 21 million is considered a consensus rule. Now, instead of that being enforced with this traditional like uh, three branches of government representative democracy, democracy system that we have in the U.S., it's enforced by running a full node and any user can run a full node. And if any rule was ever changed, 
then all the other full nodes would reject it. So literally in order to make a change to Bitcoin, every single person who's running this, basically this computer software called Bitcoin would have to, would all have to upgrade at the same time and accept that rule change, which would never happen. It's just wow. completely impractical. Right? Wow. So everyone's okay. carrying their own personal Bitcoin constitution with them. You agree that when you enter the system and run a full node, you say, okay, well, these are the rules. They're never going to change. You're not going to change them. I'm not going to change them. They just, they're just what they are. Right. And, and they, they can't change because it would require everyone to change them. What you can do is you can create an alternative cryptocurrency, which is the whole industry that we're in is like, yeah. there are many forks of Bitcoin that will disagree on things. And like, as a side note for people who are interested, there was a, a big debate between Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash. And although Bitcoin Cash didn't want to increase the monetary supply. What they wanted to do was increase the block size. So scarcity, and this was a message that I don't really think came out at the time, but there are multiple different ways to look at scarcity. Like you can look at scarcity as the, the, the maximum amount of coins that can ever exist, or you can look at scarcity as the amount of space in a block. And this is getting way more technical than I usually get. I get this way in the book, but Essentially, like what Bitcoin Cash did is they took a clone of Bitcoin and they increased the block size and sort of like increased the digital land available. Right. And they their their argument was like, oh, more transactions could be processed. This is better for Bitcoin. And if you don't have an understanding of the technology, you might have believed that because they even marketed themselves as like the more libertarian coin. They're like, we believe in freedom. We believe in like you know, like it was just like all of these memes about how they were the more free and libertarian coin. But in reality, what they did is they made their coin less scarce. But it was it was like a it was a very bizarre thing. And I guess what what part of my mission is, is to bridge the non-technical and technical worlds and help people understand what cryptocurrency is at a deep enough level, like the minimum viable level to not get scammed into dumb things. Well, can you define for uh, lay people what does uh, running a node mean? Yeah, so um, I explained this in the book in more depth, but basically when, when Bitcoin was first a thing, like when it first came on the scene in like 2009, right? Um, it was just one software. And then if you wanted to run the software, it would run on your computer. And what it would do is it would validate, we already talked about consensus rules. So it would validate and enforce consensus rules. And it would do this thing called mining, which basically rewarded you for participating in the network to some degree. Now, over the years, mining and full nodes have split. So like this software is no longer one piece of software anymore. It's two pieces. And we call one piece the full node piece and we call the other piece the mining piece. This It evolved this way primarily because mine, mining had a financial incentive behind it and there was better hardware than just like your home computer to mine Bitcoin. Now they have like farms of dedicated hardware in China that do this. And yeah, the, the point is that two separate computers. So for the layman, the, the running a full node means that you're validating your own transactions. So every transaction that ever happens in the Bitcoin network, your full node will see. And it'll confirm not just that they're valid, but that they're in the proper order. And it'll do the entire chain of history. So as I mentioned before, it's like your Bitcoin's constitution, right? It's you're running Bitcoin's constitution and checking every transaction and ensuring that it's conforming to the rules that you originally agreed to. Cool. Just to be clear, it's actually not that hard to run a full node. You can download it on a computer and run a full node. It's, it'll take it's not hard, but it clogs up your bandwidth. Yeah, totally. But you could do it. Yeah. And um, you can, totally you can you define Bitcoin mining? 
Yeah. So Bitcoin mining is a little bit harder to define. And again, I like do it in the book a whole bunch of different ways. But like, um, so the reason why it's hard to define is because it's trying to obtain multiple uh, objectives at one time. Right. So it's trying to mining is positioned to try and get miners to do this very, very computationally expensive thing. Like they're literally burning electricity to get Bitcoin. Um, So you have to you're trying to get you're trying to get miners, you're trying to get anyone to do this very, very expensive task. So they have to be incentivized to do it. And the way that I call it, the way that I frame it in the book is I call it the alchemy of mining. And basically what it is, is through this system called proof of work, again, it's all these annoying buzzwords. The point is, is that you pay money in like real world fiat, right? So you're paying dollars, yen, pesos, wherever it is, whatever denomination of currency you're paying, you buy hardware with, with your money and then you buy electricity with that money. And the, you're burning electricity in your computers to produce Bitcoin. And this is great for you because it means that you've converted your off-chain resources into on-chain value, right? You're, it's, that's why I call it an alchemy. You're like converting, you're converting like paper money into actual digital scarcity. Because we talked about how digi- like uh, paper money isn't scarce, right? And it's controlled by these organized, like small groups of centralized people with like white beards, right? And there's no scarcity to it, but Bitcoin is scarce. So the point of mining is to do this like complicated sort of conversion process. I guess it's really it's it's sort of irritating to have to explain mining because it ends up being like the shiny object in the Bitcoin space where everyone wants to understand Bitcoin mining. Um, it's not it's not it's not crucial to understand it in order to use Bitcoin. Right. It's just not. Yeah, it's interesting. But because it's like mining is an analogy, it makes it hard to explain. Right. It's like I have to explain mining using the energy of mining. The reason why Satoshi called mining is because he wanted bitcoins to be released in a similar time scale in the same way like gold is released. Right. So it's like you have to actually go into a gold mine and dig up gold. And every four years we're actually coming up on it now. Every four years, the amount of bitcoins that miners are rewarded with is decreased by half. So. In, it, I, if I could show. Yeah, well, I won't get into it, but oh, okay, basically. So- well, that's another thing I was going to ask you to define. And not that, again, you don't need to know these things, but I think when people even have just like a basic grasp of, okay, that's a good enough explanation for me, they feel more comfortable continuing Definitely. with the discussion. So, whereas when they hear a lot of words that they don't know, or when I hear a lot of words, I don't know. So, I know yeah. everybody's talking about how there's another Bitcoin halving ha- about to happen. Yeah. What is the halving? Yeah, so the having is um, so. Well, let's see. Because this sounds like this different. sounds like something my Wiccan friend would invite me to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm I mean, out for the halving. Um, no I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, fundamentally, though, mining is just like we. Kiara was talking about the time change that that like the the time chain is the thing that makes Bitcoin valuable. Like it's not that's not easy to do like that's a that requires computational power in order to right. have that secret sauce and so you got to incentivize people to to do that and so i mean i don't want to explain care if you have a better explanation but no, my, no, you're you're doing a great job i, think I would just say the, reason, it, it, go on. the incentives go down over time because eventually uh there's not going to like kiara said there's only 21 um million so Eventually, and they're giving out part of that 21 million is is reserved for giving incentives to people to mine to to do this work. And 
that's going to run out someday. So it slowly approaches running out. Like every every few years, they have it, and so what you get as your yeah. reward goes down. And the idea is that by the time they run out of the Bitcoin, there will be enough other incentives to be to be doing this work because the system will be robust enough that people won't really need that extra beans. little incentive. So what? the answer, but what I the answer? Yeah. That's the other incentive. Yeah, fair. But yeah, yeah but yes, that these will always place. exist, but you know what I mean, yeah. Basically, when, when, when we talked about how Bitcoin used to be one single piece of software, at that time, it was something like I think fifty bitcoins was how much you'd be rewarded every ten minutes if you were running if you were running a bitcoin software like on your machine back in I don't know two thousand ten or something you would have received ten bitcoin potentially you know because it happens on a on a not randomized but sort of probabilistic basis so you don't if you're participating in mining let's re, let's take a step back mining is meant to be a ethical lottery. So if you are 10% of the networks contributing hash power, and that's, again, another annoying Wiccan buzzword, but if you're contributing 10% of like effort into mining, into this thing called mining, then you should, on average, receive 10% of the Bitcoins that are being produced or released into the Bitcoin economy, right? Because okay. we need a way to release new Bitcoins. That's what, so mining is both releasing new Bitcoins, but it's also processing new transactions. So if I send money to you, we need someone to process that. And all that means is put our transactions in some order, stack those bitches up in a block, and then add them and secure them to the blockchain so that full nodes, like me and you, presuming we're running full nodes, can verify that like the whole chain agrees on what the order is. And that I have, in fact, paid you. I no longer have money. You have money. Yeah. Cool. And the halving is when they the reward that you get for mining Bitcoin is cut in half again. Yep, and it happens about every four years. It's, it, it's, so when we talk about the time chain, um, Bitcoin doesn't know what time it is, right? Bitcoin doesn't, because it's trustless, it can't look to any clock. Like I remember when atomic clocks were big and like my mom got an atomic clock at Costco and it like synced with this, everyone was huge. I'm like, I'm synced with an atomic clock now. It was a huge deal, like in I the totally early 2000s. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like Bitcoin cannot sync to an atomic clock because then it would be trusting that computer. And if that computer were ever hacked, it could manipulate time and change the order of transactions, right? So the happening counts time based on its own blocks. So when I say about every four years, it's designed to, to count its own blocks and then to basically keep time in pace with for, with that four-year mark based on its own internal design of t keeping time. It's it's super elegant um, and very nuanced. And unfortunately, it does require a lot of new terminology to explain. <laughs> Is that good, Carrie? Are you good? You got an explanation that works or not? I'm good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, check mark. I did all right. So um, Peter Schiff, uh, one of his Peter Schiff's arguments against cryptocurrency generally is that um, there's not a limited number of coins because even though Bitcoin limits it to 21 million, um, other current, you could, like anyone else could start a, a competitive to Bitcoin and, and have. Uh, and so there's potentially, it's only limited by the imagination and work of people who want to create alternate coins. I guess th theoretically similar to, um, you know, you could start your own country and issue another currency if you wanted to uh, or something yeah. like that. I'm not sure. Yeah. Peter Schiff is such an interesting guy. Like I actually like Peter Schiff. 
but he doesn't understand crypto. And it's sometimes, you know, you have to look at incentives when people claim to not understand something like his entire brand revolves around gold doing well. Right. right. And like Warren Buffett, he talks about how cryptocurrency, I think he called it like rat poison squared or like one of his business partners called it rat poison squared. Like they, they really hate crypto. And then you look at his holdings and it's like, oh, you own the banks. Right. It's like, do you really not understand this or are you financially incentivized to not understand <laughs> right. this? That, my favorite was Jamie Dimon from uh, is Jamie Dimon Chase or is he uh, Citibank? I think he's Chase. Uh, like he was out and I think whatever bank he, he runs, he was out bad mouthing crypto. And literally the same day, his daughter was buying crypto and like doing some crypto conference somewhere. So like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, on his behalf, my, right? my, my answer is so. In terms of like the real answer is that's a really uneducated position because there's this whole thing called infrastructure. You know, like you don't get to just spin up a cryptocurrency and then like have it be worth thousands of dollars. Uh, I know I've tried this. Like actually <laughs> in the early days of cryptocurrency, everyone was making an altcoin and Bitcoin developers. This is sort of like contextual history to make the industry more exciting for people. Bitcoin developers started to get concerned, like, oh, this is going to devalue, you know, like they had little Peter, Peter Schiff in their head thinking, maybe he's right, maybe he's right. And they started to get worried. So what they did is they built a tool to make creating altcoins as easy as possible. So for a small fee, you could go to a website, you can type in how many maximum coins you want. Oh, 21 million, let's do 48 million. Let's do 10 million. Let's change the divisibility. And like, let's change all these little things. You can go on a website and just make your own altcoin. And almost overnight, that killed all the demand for altcoins. Yep. It was like, yep, it was just, you flood the market, make it as easy as possible. And yeah, I mean, it turns out it actually requires more work than that to maintain a stabilized, you know, this, this is a huge, like, um, the amount of cryptography and engineering that goes into Bitcoin is not something that can be done through like a website or app. You can't just throw up a new one. Uh, there's probably like a hundred competent developers in the world and maybe 10 of them are working on Bitcoin. Right. So, so. One, one thing that strikes me that I've, uh, I'd like your opinion on is it seems to me as, and, and again, I, I, I am a cryptographer by trade, like the crypto I get, but I'm not a, I'm not a, um, cryptocurrency person. I don't spend a lot of time. I'm going to have some various coins and whatever. And like, I understand it, but I'm not like deep in the cryptocurrency world. Um, it's one thing that struck me uh, looking at the cryptocurrency world is it seems like there's a lot of currencies that spend a lot of time marketing, or at least there were. A lot of their effort was like marketing the fact that they exist rather than solving a problem that would kind of inherently make them popular and valuable. Is that still true? Or like, how, what's your view of the landscape of the cryptocurrencies generally right now? Yeah, so in 2017 is when I got the idea, or maybe the end of 2017, when I, that was when, so there's like cryptocurrency, the coins that are like, the value is on the blockchain itself. And then there's like tokens, which are written on the back of transactions and like usually meant to represent things off chain. So like an example of this, I saw like a, a, a club in Vegas said, oh, you can buy membership to our club by buying our token and like people were starting to get into really complex scams, but because they could hand wave cryptocurrency, no one could see through the bullshit. I'd be like, no, 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 it's on the blockchain and it's secure. But really it was just like, 
rat poison squared, right? It was like actual garbage and a bunch of stuff that people were selling is were definitely scams. I think that, you know, I, I'm, I'm more small government oriented, which is why I find cryptocurrency so interesting. The con of that is that you really need to be aware because there are a ton of scams and the scams get complex. And I think advertising a currency is wrong. Um, I was on a plane once and there was an advertisement for Dash, which is supposedly like a privacy coin on the back of my TV screen on this flight that I'm about to take. And that's I like think, a semi-legitimate one, by the way, like of the- It's semi-legitimate, yeah. totally. And it, not by my standard, because they have really weird marketing practices. Like to me, that right. debunks it in and of itself. But like no, the no, crypto agree, part of it, I guess- Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's sketchy. And then there's also like, if you talk to like actual strategic investors who are looking at cryptocurrency as a potential hedge against all the different assets that are do- denominated in primarily dollars, you know, cryptocurrencies are in inverse to the rest of the market. So if the stock market goes up, Bitcoin tends to go down. If Bitcoin goes up, the stock market is ten- tending to not do well. This is great for 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 uh, people who are managing large portfolios. Uh, I sort of lost my train of thought here. What was I saying? We were talking about Dash. We were talking about scams. Yeah, oh, I was just asking. Like, things, how, yeah, go ahead. One go ahead. of the things that these hedge fund guys talk about is that they don't want to get involved with any cryptocurrency that is so centralized that the centralized organization owns majority share. So like Ripple is a good example of this where, you know, think what you want to Ripple because I'm not necessarily criticizing their tech. But what I am saying is that someone started a cryptocurrency and they own like 60% of it. They're right? an so example of that someone means, that also was hyped a lot, right? Yeah, they're hyped a lot because they paid marketers. And then you have to get into, well, it, if we remember the Hillary Clinton campaign, like, are you really organically marketing? Are these real people promoting you? Or is this astroturfed, right? So, because on the internet, you don't know who's a dog, right? It's like everyone's, right. someone can appear to really care about Ripple or to really care deeply about Hillary Clinton's campaign. But at the end of the day, you don't know if they're paid. And there are some sketchy, there's definitely ways to detect sketchy behavior, but that requires like way more robust analytical systems. Like, you know, for people using common sense, just like don't buy into shit that looks scammy. Yep. Yeah, or that you don't like, you don't fully understand, and you don't know the team. I mean, you could just do kind of yep. a Warren Buffett investment strategy thing here. Like, if you don't understand the thing and you don't know the management team and have trust in them, probably don't buy their coin. I guess. Um, yeah, it's just confusing because people will say, "Well, Bitcoin doesn't have a team," right? So it's like it's a really it's hard, and like I understand that it's hard, but I go through each piece of it of different things that you can do to maybe get a better assessment of like what's potentially something that's interesting and not a fully a scam. Well, that brings me to another question then. Like, uh, I view, I mean, this is just my bias, but I kind of view Bitcoin as never really going away, even if it doesn't have as much practical value, because it seems to be the, the coin through which, even if even if there was lots of practical value elsewhere, Bitcoin seems to be the coin through which people vector from fiat into the crypto space generally. So it's always got some use there. What's your view yeah. on like, Bitcoin being the long-term thing that gets used or is it going to be something else or like what's your view there? I guess the term being used is sort of I think it's I don't know you know what what being used means because like if you were to talk to the Bitcoin cash people they would say being used means being used in payments and I don't think the properties of Bitcoin align with payments pretty much at all like I think you can make payments with Bitcoin otherwise it wouldn't work but it's very, very minimal, and I think it's more meant for savings. I think Bitcoin would probably be the primary thing to be used in savings, and 
other things will be used uh, like privacy coins would probably be used more for like dark markets or for people who are trying to maintain privacy or for people who have a fear of staying in their particular state. I just heard uh, a story about how there was these group of Afghani girl coders and they were using Bitcoin to accept payments like this was back in like 2015. I don't know if they still accept Bitcoin, but they were building little websites and apps and things for people like on a commission basis. And then they would get paid in Bitcoin because they weren't banked. And like they didn't necessarily need to be, you know, hidden from their government. They just needed a way to have value and have it stored. So right. like there's a lot of use cases that I'm not educated on, uh, but I know that they're out there. Like there there's use cases in places where the currency isn't so stable and like the people will do complicated stuff. Like they'll sell their car and then buy Bitcoin and then exchange that into a gift card. And like all of that works to somehow preserve the value of their money in Africa. Like it's really complicated shit, but you know, could another cryptocurrency do that? Yeah. Will they? Probably not because you need, you need the whole infrastructure. Like how many places actually support every other cryptocurrency? Like usually they support Bitcoin and maybe one or two more, but then the one or two tend to differ. Right. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ethereum is pretty common, but yeah. So I have a, I'm going to have to go soon guys. Cause I got, I've got to get ready for work and stuff, but I, um, I wanted to make sure I asked a question about like, so for pragmatically for any normies watching, um, if you want to buy Bitcoin, cause I, it's funny the timing of this. Cause I just had a friend ask me about this on a hike the other day. Um, pragmatically, would you direct them to Coinbase and can you quickly define, cause it all sounds, again, it sounds like magic. Like, oh, I got to get a bread wallet and there's like cold storage and on my password, you know, like it just yeah. sounds like a fantasy. It's true. It's true. And like, I don't, I don't want to sound like pretentious and use terms that people don't understand. But the problem is we're talking about an intangible digital thing and yeah. everything we use to describe it is an analogy that borrows that analogy from an actual physical thing. So I, it's like, I, it's cold, but it's yeah. digital, but it's bread it's like none of yes. it makes any sense <laughs> yes i had a moment where uh over a year ago or so i thought i had spyware on my computer this is a long story but i thought somebody had maliciously stolen my bitcoin because they could see my keywords when i entered them because they had spyware and what it turned out it was all fine i just had a separate wallet with nothing in it. And I kept looking at the zeroed wallet and I wasn't looking at the wallet that had the money in it. Yeah. And so, yeah. And my friend who had sent me the Bitcoin helped me figure it out. Like it was just anyway. Um, but for a couple of days I really came to terms with, okay, I lost all this money. I guess I should call the police. And what do I say? Like, well, I had this bread wallet and then in the (laughs) bread wallet, I had all these magic words that were going to open it. What are the chances that the cop I'm doing the police yeah. report with even is Bitcoin uh, yeah. fluent? So what what were the chances with the fluent? Like uh, anyway, that made me laugh. But but really, it it reminded me of how these words. If you're hearing all this stuff for the first time, it can sound overwhelming. If I were to explain, I tried to explain Bitcoin to my dad once. Just pragmatically, how would you explain? Don't worry about all the words, but like, here's what it is in in a a language that like to relate it to the way that you currently use money and currency. How would you say like, go to Coinbase, buy some Bitcoin there. And then yeah, I would say a disclaimer, not investment advice, but if okay. you decide on your own position to buy, to buy Bitcoin that you should, you should go to Coinbase and then you should read up on using ledger. 
not treasure, but I think ledger is the best. And uh, so you'll store your mnemonic, which is your magic 12 words or 24 words or whatever you end up selecting. And that'll allow you to recover your bitcoins if you ever lose your hardware wallet. So um, what's, what's ledger? A ledger is a hardware wallet. So okay. it's basically a little tiny computer that all it does is sign your transactions it signs your Bitcoin transactions and it's not connected to the internet. Um, yeah. So if you have some money stored in this, this tiny computer called the ledger wallet, it's just the brand of the hardware wallet, then it's left offline. And when you decide that you want to send money to Coinbase to then sell your Bitcoin or to some family member, perhaps in Greece where, you know, the banks were closed back in 2015, then you can just connect to your hardware wallet to your dominant computer that has internet connection. And that's why we call it cold. It's because it's it's not off, it's not online. Online would be hot. Offline is cold. That's the idea. So, and then things that happened to you where you thought you got hacked wouldn't happen because your bitcoins aren't on your computer anymore. Right. So I thought. So I have something called Trezor. Is that a ledger? No, Trezor is another kind of hardware wallet, but there's some like nuanced vulnerabilities with it. Uh, um, okay. It's not. It's like the second best wallet, probably. But yeah. okay. they're competitors, basically. Carrie. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I'm learning. Okay, and so, would you suggest keeping any Bitcoin in? I also have Bread Wallet. I mean, my my personal preference is that I carry some. I leave some wallet, uh, some money on an exchange, just because like I don't care about it that much. Money I care about, I I take offline and put on the hardware wallet, like what you have. Got it. Okay. Yeah, it's like do you value liquidity? <laughs> if you value liquidity, then like sure, have some on your phone. If you value access. One thing I don't I don't think people like people who aren't familiar with Bitcoin, I'm not sure they understand out of the gate. And I'm reminded by this actually because of Peter Schiff, who lost a Bitcoin this week, he like lost his wallet or something. Eric for he set up a Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, But uh, the point is, um, I think people are used to this idea that like, like you don't keep large amounts of gold or cash in your house. You're not responsible for the security of your own money. You outsource that to banks generally. Um, and so you have this feeling that like, oh, I'm just going to, the money's in the bank or it's wherever. And like, I can always get it and it's going to be secure there and nothing will ever happen. And people kind of feel very safe and secure with banks. Um, with Bitcoin, there are certainly places you can keep your money. You could keep all your money in Coinbase if you wanted to, but uh there's this feeling that like actually they're not really as secure. They could get hacked, something could happen. And so you're actually responsible for the your the security of your own money. And I don't think that's something that people are used to, right? Yep. To, to say to someone like, look, um, you know, it's all on your ledger um, and it's all the password in your head combined with the ledger, like those two things you need. And, and the only re- way to recover it is these keywords that you have also physically probably copied somewhere, stored somewhere physically, like that you need to protect uh, pretty ferociously because that's how your coins get accessed. You're the bank. No, you're totally right. I think it's just a big gap for people to, I think Bitcoin is confusing because it uses real world terms like keys and wallet and then none of it is actually tangible. 
Like ultimately these are just digital things and that's why we can have a couple of words restore value. Like all of it is really, really bizarre. And you know, the reason why I wrote the book is for people who are normies and for like people who want to understand the system so that they can have greater confidence in using it. Like, yes, like we talked about, you don't really need to know about mining, but it helps so that you can actually understand and like not just be like, oh, this is internet funny money. Um, it, that being said, it, it does require a lot of responsibility. And that's why I don't like blanket statement advocate everyone go out and buy Bitcoin tomorrow as a hedge against the Federal Reserve. I do think the threats are real. And I do think the opportunity to hedge against, you know, mistakes by the central government is is potentially there in Bitcoin and maybe other cryptocurrencies. But the responsibility is so huge and no one's ready for that. So it's like, oh, well, I don't know, I guess put what you're willing to lose because most, most people don't lose money from hacks. They lose money because they lost their Bitcoins themselves. Right. I guess that's my point. Like not everyone has... A lot of Bitcoin people that I know have big safes in their houses and they're like they store stuff in them and like they know that's their that's where the jewels are and like they they protect it and they they're very aware that like this set of, you know, 20 words, whatever it is, uh, like is very important. Um, yeah. It accesses all of my wallet. So it needs to be hidden and it needs to be protected and I can't ever lose it. So. Yeah, it's it's a not it's it's a it's a non-trivial amount of responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Like if you have a, an account at Charles Schwab or some crappy broker, and you know you've got a million bucks in it, and you know there's some error and it all goes away, well, you can contact them and and like just print, they just do it all over again. They're like, oh no, we've got your money, and like you get the legal team behind it, right? But, no right. like IT support for Bitcoin. There's no Bitcoin governance that you can call up to say, "Oh, I'm sorry, man. Like someone, you know, came over to my house and robbed me at gunpoint, and I had to give them my mnemonic." Like, nope. It's just your responsibility for better or for worse, and there's nothing else that you can do about it. And I mean, I think that's what's so great about it. I was going to say what I like about that, Kiara, is it it's very reminiscent of the kind of personal responsibility I think we need to grow and cultivate as a society in order to have small or no governments. Like if you want a limited government and if you want to get to a spot where uh, people are responsible, this is the kind of personal responsibility that you need to step up and take. Well said. Well said. <laughs> Carrie, before you go, do you have any last uh, any last questions for uh, for Kiara in terms of uh, I don't know any other normie questions you want to ask? <laughs> uh, I think I've asked all my, my top normie questions. Oh, uh, Satoshi, this is just an interesting thing I think for normies too. Nobody knows who this dude is, right? He's the guy who invented Bitcoin, but nobody knows who he is. Yeah, and it's actually a, a strength of Bitcoin that nobody knows who he is. Otherwise, it would become like a cult-like following, right? Right. Is yeah. he God? Is he God? <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I I don't think Bitcoin was created by Jesus. Okay. <laughs> well, he He's doesn't actually have any special power, though. To be clear, it's not like there's right. an anonymous guy who can change anything about Bitcoin. Like it's done. Well, God doesn't. He allows you to have free will within his universe. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm always poking Carter the atheist with my silly religious. Thing. Anyway, I got to go. I really enjoyed meeting you. Have a good you. day. Thank you so much for this. I think people are really going to love this episode because it's 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 something I, people ask me about this all the time. And I don't I'm not equipped to explain it. And I think now I can be like, watch this video. <laughs> Thank <laughs> Maybe you guys. Maybe we'll be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thanks, guys. 
Thanks, Kiri. Um, Kiara, before you go, I want to give you an opportunity to just, uh, you know, what are some of the biggest questions or problems or concerns that, that people have that you think they need? Like, what do, they, what do people really need to know desperately that they're not knowing? Normies. What do normies need to know about Bitcoin that they don't know? Gosh, what do normies need to know about Bitcoin? I guess I'm just, again, I'm like less aggressive about it. I'm less like, well, they don't need to, like, Bitcoin doesn't care if you're a part of it. Like Bitcoin doesn't care if you buy Bitcoin. I don't care if you buy Bitcoin or don't buy Bitcoin. The What I'm doing with my entire life is like the past two years I've been writing this book and the years before that I was working for the Bitcoin companies, right? And I've put my life into that because I think this is the best step towards personal responsibility and growth as some sort of culture around responsibility. Um, that being said, it's not all perfect. Um, and I, there's definitely... Bitcoin could definitely benefit by having more creative thinking around it. Like right now, it's very hard to monetize things in the space. It's hard to monetize wallets. It's hard to monetize, uh, like ex basically anything that isn't an exchange is hard to monetize. And right. you know, if we want this this future, what do you what would you even call it? Like a cypherpunk technologist sort of future of like smart contracts and and the future I'm envisioning is going to require more creativity than the minds that currently exist in the space, right? If we're all just sort of analytically looking at Bitcoin, I don't think that gets us to the future we want. So I do, I do hope that more people get involved in Bitcoin and add something new to it other than the same sort of repetitive ma libertarian, like ma cryptocurrency narrative. I think it's got to be more than that. And the more than that part that I'm trying to offer in this case is like, personal responsibility, learn something about what you're buying before you buy it. And don't get caught up in the hype, like so much fucking hype in cryptocurrency. And most of it is just garbage, right? I don't trust anyone who wants to aggressively sell me on anything, which is why I don't. Like, again, I don't care if people are interested or not, but you should be curious about why someone would do this for their entire career and why <laughs> lots of people in the Silicon Valley, like it's, it's, it, it, it's interesting to me and I do think there's something there in the long term. What that ends up being is really just a culmination of what we all decide to build. I like that approach um, as someone who uh, spent a little bit of time looking at cryptocurrency. I got I kind of got bored with the whole thing. I was like, this is just it's like another blockchain applied to something I don't care about. Another alternate, another altcoin doing X, Y, Z. Like, and I'm a crypto guy and I got bored. I was just like, I don't. Bitcoin's cool. I, I get it. I like it. Uh, I just started getting bored with the industry. I think I never heard anyone say it the way you're saying it, though. That we just need more creative minds, like making it something more than it is. We don't need more exchanges and uh, you know more coins that are doing the same thing but slightly different as these other coins. Uh, we don't need to put more stuff on the blockchain. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's something. I think more creative needs to come along to compel people to use it. I love the personal responsibility angle. So thank you for bringing that up. Definitely. And we should talk again, like after this. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, how can people, can we remind everyone, how can they follow you? Where can they get your book? Uh, if they want to learn, if they want to get some Bitcoin clarity, where can they get your book, Kira? Yeah. So I decided to sell the book exclusively like for through my site from now for, for right now. So it's not released on Amazon yet, and I'm doing the first thousand books this way. So if you want to buy it in Bitcoin or in dollars or whatever you want, you can buy it on my site, and that's just getbitcoinclarity.com. You can join my mailing list there. You can follow my social media sites there. You can follow me on Twitter. 
Um, I, I'm going to start taking all the illustrations in the book and then animating them into like one minute explainer videos. So really my niche is sort of educating and hoping to branch out into other areas. So uh, like I would love to reach more people that are in hedge funds. I'd love to reach more people that are in the stock market. I'd love to reach more boomers. I'd love to reach more Zen, Gen Z people, right? Like people who aren't me. Uh, I'm even trying to reach out to more millennials who maybe aren't interested in crypto because they don't understand it. But honestly, you know, they're kind of screwed because millennials don't own anything. So I'm like, maybe you could start by like dollar cost averaging into Bitcoin. You know? <laughs> uh, but yeah, if anyone has any ideas of who I should talk to or what I should branch into, I, I'm talking what I'm going to start doing in my YouTube channel. I think you'd be interested in it, but I'm taking a couple academics that I cited in my book and then I'm like trying to coerce them into interviews. So there's this one guy who's, who did this beautiful like all of his work is amazing. Like this guy is out of Nigeria, I think, uh, a professor who just talks about the ethics of money and how to design more ethical money. And I'm interview that guy. So I'm trying to, I'm basically trying to branch out and talk to people intelligently without the hype about cryptocurrency. And if anyone who's watching can help me with that, definitely just shoot me a message. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I look forward to that. That actually, I will be interested in that. That sounds interesting. You and I always have super long, like it gets to be three in the morning kind of conversations whenever we're together. So, uh, yeah, we can yeah. get down on this longer. So, um, yeah, thank you, Kiara, for, uh, for joining us on the safe space. And, um, I'm sure we'll have you back. Good luck with the book. Thanks. As a reminder, you can use either Bitcoin or Ethereum to support our work at unsafe space by donating to the wallet addresses shown on your screen. Or, if you're listening to this episode, you can go to unsafespace.com donate to learn more about supporting us using cryptocurrency or plain old fiat. Every little bit helps us to continue bringing you interesting and thoughtful content. Special thanks to our Subscribestar supporters, and as always, thanks to you for watching.